Let me take Harold's picture. <laughs> I just like to prove to people that people actually do come see me. <laughs> so we'll take these, and then you guys back there. Wait, I didn't get Jeremy. <laughs> this is my publisher, Jeremy Lassen. I'm really glad he put this book out. And it's one of the nicer covers I've had. Uh, Jim and the Flims. Nice painting. What this book is about, it has to do with the afterlife. Uh, the, the books I wrote right before this, uh, Post-Singular and Hylozoic, are sort of, in a way, hard as if, almost like our speed metal SF, just piling on more and more scientific detail. And I wanted to get away from that here, and so I wanted to do something that's a little bit like fantasy, uh, but also it's sort of my nature, even if I'm doing something a little bit like fantasy, I want to have uh, some sort of scientific, or at least if not scientific, at least logical, coherent explanation for what's going on. I like there to be some coherent system behind it. I've never liked the sort of fantasy where things happen and then they don't circle back and explain it. I mean, in a way, X-Files as a TV show is a little bit like that. But I like, I like things to be wrapped up. So what's going on here, or what's going to happen, is basically the main hero, he sort of screws up, and as a consequence, uh, his wife dies. And then he wants to go back to the afterworld, go to the afterworld and bring her back. So it's sort of like the Orpheus and Eurydice story. And uh, I remember when I sent it to Jeremy, he said, well, I can never resist a good Orpheus and Eurydice story. <laughs> That's a good sign. Okay. Um, so I think, uh, just to make it simple, I think I'll just read the first chapter, which isn't too long, and then we're going to have uh, some time for a Q&A. And also, uh, Liz, our, our Nightshade publicist, is here, and she had the idea that uh, we should give away one of my prints. There's a, a bunch of my prints. This is actually the only store in the universe where you can buy art prints by me. And because I printed some up, I got a, a high-quality Canon inkjet printer. And... Uh, so we'll, at the end of the reading and after the Q&A, we'll do sort of a raffle and give one away. So, uh-huh, yeah, Jude will get it organized. Okay. So, um, okay. So it starts in Santa Cruz. Four Mile Beach. I'm Jim, I'm Jim Oster. I grew up in Sunnyvale, a knot of freeways near San Jose, California. My father was an electrical engineer, and my mother sold online ads. Dad was what you might call piebald, with different colors in his hair. He stared off into the distance a lot, always thinking about his projects. Mom had warm eyes, and she'd smile and nod when she had She spent most of her time staring down at her little phone's screen. During my senior year in high school, I used to play hooky and go surfing in Santa Cruz. It was only a half hour's drive away. In the morning, I'd stuff my wetsuit into my backpack instead of carrying books. My parents didn't notice, and if they had, they wouldn't have cared. They'd had their one child, me, and by now they'd turned to other concerns, their jobs and their investments. My grades weren't a big issue, as I'd already been accepted for admission at the University of California. My favorite surf break was off a rocky point at Four Mile Beach on Route 1 north of Cruz. My friend Chang would drive us over there. Chang wasn't into studying at all. He was planning to be a pro surfer, and he figured his day job could be dealing pot. 
He had a vintage blue oat board with an epic feel. I was more of a short boarder, working snappy moves up and down the tubes when I wasn't wiped out and floundering in the foam. Some of the locals at Four Mile had taken to hassling us. A spaced-out, raw-boned guy called Skeeves was on my case in particular. He was a little older than the rest of us. All he did was surf, and he lived in his van. One particular afternoon, I did a drop-in on one of Skeeves' waves, forcing him away from the curl. When we got back to shore, he put his face really close to mine and started yelling curses at me, even throwing in some gibberish-type incantations that he'd learned. Skeeves had this idea that he was hooked into the magic of the pyramids, or some shit like that. Shit beetle, yelled Skeeves. Ang salam, amen hotep. Calm down, I told him. It's just a wave. Ronu port mu hura, Skeeves intoned, making weird gestures with his hands. Dude's having a fit, said Chang, standing at a safe distance. His brain is slushed. It's a magic spell, fool, said Skeeves. The chant is called leaving in the daytime. I might send you two out of your bodies. He crouched and picked up a dense, sharp rock. Let's take a break, Chang, I said, briskly heading down the beach. We'll get some beer, I called. I called back to Skeeves. You can have all my waves while I'm gone. Skeeves' van was parked in the lot near Chang's pickup. Skeeves lived in this van, mostly, and he had tinted glass in the rear windows. He painted occult symbols all over the vehicle, ank crosses with loops on top, scarab beetles, hovering eyes, hieroglyphs, and a long pair of wings flowing back from the front wheel welds. Peering in through the van's dusky rear window, we could make out a long gold box in the back of the van. Skeeves got into the Egyptian stuff when he started dealing dope to Julian Crocker in San Francisco, said Chang. But wow, is that a casket? Who's Crocker? He's a screwball descendant of this rich old family. He lives in a mansion with all these whack antiquities. Skeeves is up there all the time. Last week he was putting together a deal to sell Crocker a bunch of ketamine. I brooded about Skeeves on the short drive to the Quick Mart in Davenport, and when we got back to Four Mile Beach parking lot, I took a knife out of Chang's glove compartment and slashed one of the front tires on Skeeves' van. Chang and I carried the beer down to the beach and had a mellow hour or two on the waves. I even forgot about slashing Skeeves' tire until we all went back up to the lot together. Skeeves got all excited. Chang was laughing so hard that the weird old surfer figured out it was me who'd done the deed. Skeeves said he was going to kill me. He fetched an axe with a green painted handle from the van. I was scared. It was hard to tell what Skeeves might do. And it looked as if the axe blade already had blood on it. It was maybe the next day, oh wait a minute, Chang and I ran, leading Skeeves in a big circle. We got back to Chang's pickup first, then hopped in and drove away. It was maybe the next day when we saw in the paper that Julian Crocker had been found dead in his home. The cops thought it might be a drug overdose. Crocker was found lying beside a fireplace filled with ashes. Apparently he'd suffocated from some smoke, and an ancient gold sarcophagus was said to be missing from the Crocker man's. But there's no actual signs of robbery. In any case, Crocker's surviving relatives weren't interested in trying to make a case. 
and the cops quickly lost interest. Quite a few of the surf crowd must have suspected that Skeeves was involved, especially with that funky gold casket right in his van. A rumor was circulating among us that Skeeves was now fucking a mummy that he'd found in a gold box. <laughs> Not that any of us was going public with this stuff. Chang and I had switched to Surfing Pleasure Point down near 41st Street and Cruz. There are some psychos there, too, and a few of them made a point of picking on us especially when they found out that we were valley guys from near San Jose. Chang toughed it out and got in with the bras. His steady supply of weed was a help, but I couldn't get past the hostility. And then I was like, fuck it, and I went back to skateboarding. I've never been that good of a surfer anyway. After high school, I went to college at the Santa Cruz campus of the University of California. I decided to go for a bachelor's degree in bioengineering, Everyone said biotech was the coming thing, and the courses appealed to me. I always liked video games, and I dug the idea of viewing the natural world as being a big program that we could mod and hack. Of course, there were people, especially on crews, who worried that biotech was going to bring on some filthy germs who'd kill us all. My professor said that wasn't a real problem, because if you looked into it a little, you could see that our whole entire ecology is made of plants, animals, and microorganisms who want to eat everything. All the species have been mutating and evolving for billions of years, each and every one of them striving for world domination. And no piddly-ass organism we are going to cook up in a lab had any chance of taking down the ancient battle-scarred pros. To hear my profs tell it, home-brewed germs were like high school grommets facing the gnarly surfers of Four Mile Beach. <laughs> well, maybe they were right, and maybe not. Either way, I figured it would be good to have a rebellious, clear-minded guy like me on the inside of the biotech biz. I'd be ready to blow the whistle on the, blow the, whistle on the earth rapers it ever, if it ever came down to that. Meanwhile, I was hoping to discover some cool things and to make a good living as well. My old friend Chang was living down in Cruz by now, too, surfing his ass off. He won a few local contests, and during my junior year at UC Santa Cruz, he got invited to the annual Mavericks Big Wave contest a few miles up the coast. I went to watch him, that is, to watch the faint line on the horizon where the big waves were. On the TV monitors, we could see Chang carving sick curves into the wobbly mountains of glass. He placed in the top five, and he picked up some sponsorship deals. Chang came by my rented room a month after Mavericks and lent me a board so we could go riding at four mile like old times. Sure enough, our man Skeeves was still on the waves, indefatigable as a Terminator robot, still living in his Egyptian-themed van. By now, Chang was, in some sense, a friend of Skeeves. That is to say, Skeeves' over-tweaked synapses could successfully achieve a pattern recognition of Chang's face. <laughs> he walked over to us and Chang broke out a joint. Skeeves seemed to recognize me, but so far as I could tell, he'd forgotten about the slashed tire. I figured the joint was like a peace pipe. But after a few tokes, Chang, never one to let things stay calm, started ribbing the eccentric old server. Getting much? Chang asked him. Still fucking the mummy? <laughs> Even when Skeeves had his shades off, you couldn't really see his eyes, buried as they were in the creases of his weathered lids. He turned his head towards Chang, moving as slowly as a plant tracking the sun. 
just the girl, allowed Skeeves in a low murmur, his tongue loosened by the pot. Not the guy who's in the box with her. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> Julian Crocker and I smoked the third mummy, you know. <laughs> Amenhotep. He was down under the other two, all crumbly like rotten wood. We burned Amenhotep in Crocker's marble fireplace, the two of us leaning into the fumes. Very resinous, very tasty. <laughs> what a rush. But then Crocker died, the fucking lightweight. <laughs> <laughs> Mummies, I said numbly, feeling the layers of reality come peeling off. <laughs> that mummy girl, she's softer than you'd think, came Skeeves' raspy whisper. <laughs> Good stuff. <laughs> it's more like she's in a coma. <laughs> Every now and then, in my head, she talks to me. Can we see them, asked Chang? They're in that gold sarcophagus in the back of your van, right? You're legendary, dude. I, I, don't, think, I don't think Jim here could handle it, said Skeeves thoughtfully. <laughs> the spirit of Amenhotep destroys the weak. Did you say that you smoked Amenhotep's mummy, I said to ask? You and Crocker? Skeeves squinted at me for a long time. Remember the axe, Jim, he said finally. <laughs> and Lotus laid his bony fingers on his lips. I knew then that Skeeves hadn't forgotten about the slash tire at all. But now that he'd shared his secret with me or run me through a bizarre put-on, we were closer than before. From then on, when I crossed Skeeves' path around Cruz, I'd wave and he'd favor me with a slow nod. Not that I spent much time thinking about him, or about the Gunji Koma chick who was supposed to be in his Egyptian sarcophagus. <laughs> so it goes on from there. And uh, Skeeves is a persistent problem throughout the book. <laughs> and, uh, well, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Uh, how about, let's take some questions. Is this your first one? Is this my first novel? Probably not. Yeah, no, no. This is my, I don't know, this is my 30th book and maybe my 20, 25th novel. I think I did five books that weren't novels. So I feel, it's getting a little bit easier, but each time I'm, when I'm starting, and John Shirley and other writers here, I'm sure you know this feeling, that Every time I'm starting a book, I think, well, I've been faking it until now. I'm not a writer. I'm not going to be able to finish this book. But uh, this one actually came out pretty easily. It's sort of like a tall tale. And I was having fun writing it. Do you live in Santa Cruz area? I live in Los Gatos, which is just over the mountain from Santa Cruz. And, and we go there every couple of weeks. And I know some people that live down there. Four Mile Beach is a real place. It's, it's a good surfing beach. What's the, what's the afterlife like in the book? Well, the afterlife, what, what's the nature of that? Well, that was the thing. Okay, you're asking me what is the afterlife in the novel. Um, it was, uh, it's sort of like, a, oh, I guess it's a little bit like a parallel sheet of reality. But uh, for a science fiction gimmick, well, no, I won't even get into how I locate it. It's, think of it as a parallel world, and there's a tunnel that you can go through to get there. And then... Uh, 
like I said, I was trying to kind of push the fantasy buttons a little bit with this book. So it's sort of like a fantasy world. I mean, it's green, and there's these odd creatures called jivas, which is a word I, I picked up from uh, Jim Woodring. They're sort of like giant beets. They're hovering in the air, and not 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 all that benevolent. They act like they're benevolent. And then there's some other creatures that are sort of like blue baboons. And initially they seem like sort of the bad guys. And as a typical move in this kind of book is the, pe the creatures that you think are good at first tend out to be bad, and the ones you think are bad turn out to be pretty good. They're not that good, but they're relatively good. <laughs> but uh, then... Uh, so then there's somebody there who calls himself, uh, I think he calls himself the Duke or the Count. Maybe it's the Duke, I can't remember. Uh, and uh, he lives, I thought, I thought, can I go the whole route and put a Duke in a castle, you know? Do I have to go grovel to the fantasy conventions that much? <laughs> I gave my castle, but I had it look like a giant geranium plant. And that made me feel okay about it. And... Uh, then there's a sort of hell underneath the surface, or something a little bit like purgatory. And uh, it's sort of like a mall. It's a platonic mall. There's one store that'll be like ball, and every form of the archetype ball is in that store. There's one called sandwich, and every possible sandwich is in there. And uh, so, uh, so that's sort of the... And then there's a sort of center to this world, and there's this thing kind of like a goddess. sort of more fantasy in that it's it's more outdoors and there's they're wandering around doing things and there's a sword that plays an important role <laughs> so uh and no but then there's the science fictional notion that these creatures want to invade her so that's another traditional thing oh, yeah. yeah they they found well due to this guy screwing around with things he's produced a uh, sort of tunnel to the, the afterlife and then, you know, there's these creatures that live there, the, G the Jeevas and the Yules, and each of them, for their own purposes, would like to come over to Earth and sort of strip mine it. Is there a metaphysical theory, though, behind the afterlife that represents anything you believe uh, or, or posit? Well, I was interested... Usually what I write about has to do with things that I'm, I'm currently interested in. Sometimes I call some of my fiction I've called transrealism in that it tends to be sort of rather closely related to, to my life. It's not realism, it's transrealism. It's not surrealism. It's realism beyond my life. And one of the things that conditioned this was uh, I'd had a I had a thing where I had a, a hemorrhage in my brain. And so I, uh, I was sort of out of it for a day or two, and then I, I snapped back, and then it stopped bleeding by itself, and you know, I, I didn't regain my brain function. So I, you know I'm all well, but there was that moment of waking up after that sort of jump cut, where you're here on the couch, and the next thing you know you're in the hospital, and people are talking to you in a way like I'm sorry for you, and uh, uh, it's unusual. 
<laughs> and there's like that gap in between. You know, there wasn't any white light. I wasn't seeing my dead parents. You know, it was just nothing. You know, it wasn't even black. You know, it was just zilch. And then, you know, I started brooding about that and thinking, well, if I had never woken up, then that could have been, you know, the end. You know, and then it's like, that's how it could be to die. It's just, bam, you know, you turn off the TV, there's nothing more. And logically, that's actually, it's rather likely that that's what it is like. And there's, of course, I've known about this, you know, ever since I was, well, very young. I guess not the 13 when it's the first time I started start thinking about this in a serious way. But that was 50 years ago, so I've known about it for a long time. But it's one of these things that becomes increasingly vivid as you get older, increasingly present in your mind. And then, uh, you know, I'd sort of like for the, I'd like for the, it to be something different. That's, you know, it, that's why all the stories we tell each other in our religions and our myths about, uh, in our pseudoscience, and in our fiction about, you know, there being a high, another level that you go to after death, it's something, you know, we enjoy thinking about that because we sort of shy away from this thing of going to nothingness. Though in a way, I mean, it's sort of we're confusing two different things. Because while you're living, it's very much in your interest to avoid death. Okay, you, you want to have a nice long life, you want to get done, you want to have a family, if possible, or at least you want to have a nice long life, you want to achieve things. And so death is something you really want to avoid. So, but the thing is, that's one kind of death, the, the sort of accidental death young. Then there's the inevitable death in old age. And the thing is, that's really sort of a different thing. It's the inevitable thing. It's the thing that you can't avoid. And you sh it's ideally, it would be more soothing to not view that with the same amount of fear that I would view you know, the possibility of being assassinated. But it's a, it's a subtle distinction, and it's not always easy to make. But uh, anyway, so with thinking along those lines, then I naturally start thinking, well, there actually isn't that much science fiction about the afterlife. There really aren't that many novels about it. There's, of course, Philip Jose Farmer's River World is sort of a, a massive kind of afterlife, went on volume after volume, and it really sort of became a parallel world, a historical novel, all sorts of things. And uh, Robert Sheckley wrote a, a book called Immortality Incorporated that sort of brushed up to the notion of the afterlife, but didn't really go into it. One of my first novels was called White Light, and that was a novel that was sort of about the afterlife, too. But that was uh, the second novel I wrote. It was a long time ago. And so it seemed to me it would be fun to circle back and tackle this again. And... Uh, it's one of those things, it's, there's things that you would think people who don't know much about science fiction think there would be science fiction with these things, and then there isn't. And even people would think there'd be a lot of novels about UFOs. And in some sense, there, <laughs> there isn't that much science fiction about UFOs, it seems to me. Uh, though, I, I, there are novels with aliens, though. But it just seems like the whole theme, there's these things that we could explore use the tools of science fiction for thinking about it, doing thought experiments, imagining it, uh, developing your, your intuition about it. So uh, anyway, I thought it would be fun. So that's a long answer to a short question. How do you get yourself started? How do you start writing? Uh, well, it's... 
it's something, to some extent, it's not that I have more willpower than the average person. It's more just a quirk of my personality that I like to write. It's, uh, so it's, now, when I want to start a novel, what I tend to do, well, first, you know, I need an idea, I need characters, I need a story arc. Uh, yeah, also, you do that, you, you, you kind of map out what you're going from beginning to end. Well, that's an interesting question. Do you outline? Uh, generally, I will start, well, there's two things I'll do when I'm trying to get started on a novel. One, I might try to write a scene, and the other thing I might do is uh, start working on a document. I usually create a document that's actually as long as the novel, or the notes document. And that's, uh, I've been working on a novel for a year now, and just the other day, uh, the novel finally started being longer than the notes document. Now the notes document is up to 80,000 words, and the novel's up to 81,000 words. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah. And, uh, and the thing about outline, there's a short outline where you want this sort of high concept, like kind of the way I outlined the story of this two before. And that's, that's the sort of high concept outline. And then there's the sort of story arc where you want to have some character and something happens to them and they overcome it and then they emerge and they're in some way better. I mean, that's a typical sort of a story arc. Boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl. Uh, and in a way, when you really cook it down, these things are sort of like... And there's only you know, five or six basic plots. Some people even say there's two. I've heard Cory Doctorow likes to say there's only two. Uh, was it A Stranger Comes to Town? And what's the other one? I can't remember. Somebody leaves town? I don't know. But, um, so... Then there's the other question you were getting at when you talked about an outline. Uh, when I was young, I don't know why, I rebelled at outlines. And the way young people are, it's something I didn't feel like doing because it seemed like too much trouble. I just wanted to write the novel. So then I made up all these reasons why it was bad to have an outline. <laughs> young writers are. Even old writers. Whatever you don't do, you can talk for hours about why it would be bad to do that. You know. <laughs> But it might just be that you don't feel like doing it. It's, I used to have an English class, and they'd say, well, before you can write your paper, you have to put your paper on three-by-five cards. You know? Do you ever have a teacher like that? I'm like, you know, I forget it. You know? And uh, so I didn't do outlines, but I always would find I'd get about a half or two-thirds of the book. And there's this place, Robert Sheckley used to call it the black point. You get this, the black point. It's like you're crossing an ocean. You can't see the shore that you left from. You can't see the shore you want to get to. You're just, it's just flat. You're lost. You don't know what you're doing. And at that point, it's sort of nice to have some shred of a map, you know, that some ancient mariner handed you. <laughs> so that's where I begin to see the writing is going to be less painful if I make up some kind of outline for myself. But I guess one reason I was rebelling at the outline was the idea... In fact, if I could actually sit down and in a week write down the whole story of my book and then stick to that, then the book wouldn't actually be very interesting. Because it would just be a one-week idea about a story, and the story is going to be
literature, I mean, life doesn't unfold in one week. If you're writing about two years, it takes two years of, of real life to get there. So my point is, I needed to feel free to revise the outline. And that's the crucial thing, that if you're using outlines, it's important to understand that. You write down an outline, and sometimes, sometimes you'll sell a book on the basis of two chapters and an outline, and then you need the outline then to show your publisher, so they feel like you know what you're doing, you have some idea about the book. But it's... Uh, and even then, you're not bound by the outline, because the publishers, you know, they, they know this is just... It's just... So, they know what writers are like. So, it's uh, so I'm continually revolving. Whenever I finish a chapter, I will actually look at the outline of the part that remains, and then I'll revise that on the basis of what's happened so far. And uh, things will develop, you know, that I couldn't, couldn't anticipate. Because as you think about something for months and months, there's a lot of things that will emerge that, that were not so obvious before. I don't want to be the one who keeps asking. Your characters, <clears throat> do they sort of come full blown in your head? Or do you need to run into some place suddenly where you Well, both of those things can happen. A lead character, you usually have a pretty clear idea of what the, the first character is going to be like. Uh, you might model it on somebody you know. Generally, it's better to model on somebody you know than on somebody you've seen on TV or in a movie, because the the people in TV or movie are going to be somewhat two-dimensional and it's filtered through somebody else. It's better to do somebody that you know personally or. If you don't want to be too intrusive, somebody that you sort of piece together out of people you know personally. Often the character might be modeled on yourself. Now, when you have a, a minor character, it's it's always something I resist is to do a default on that and have them be some kind of stereotype. Then I'll say, wait, you know, this has to be a real person. And then I'll, you know, take the time. And all of this takes time, it's all effort. Of like visualizing this this minor character as a complete person, and having them do something that individualizes them. Yeah, a question there. Yeah, I did. It's a conversation a few years ago. Presenting the advent of word processors, where we're continually revising live documents. People don't keep a record. At this point, I pretty much don't save the earlier version. It's a, one reason, I think, at a certain stage in your career, you might imagine that people are going to be interested in the earlier versions. <laughs> 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 you know, the legendary, the imaginary graduate student who's going to make your life worthwhile. <laughs> but at this point, I have had some students write papers about something I've written. And then I'll read the paper, and I'm like, 
so what? <laughs> you know, it's. But I will. What I do like to do, I do have in my basement. I'll say, it's sort of a paper thing, where I'll do like different complete drafts of my books. And so I will. I will generally try to save. But it's, the thing is, because of the word processor, I don't print out that many complete entire drafts. There'll be a point where I get it and I can send it to the publisher, and that's one that I would print out and save. And then I'll get another one during editing or during copy editing, and that maybe I mark up, and that would be a different draft. So I might save those two. And sometimes along the way, I will save off a uh, like a, a version of it, you know, for the, a doc version. And also now and then, there is a lot of paper that I generate and throw away. And sometimes, I mean, I would think it would be cool to save this, but uh, I just don't imagine people being that interested in it. I don't know. Um, the Rivers, UC Riverside is a place that accumulates a lot of science fiction manuscripts. And I was down there once, and Gregory Venter was there with a minivan. And all these boxes of drafts and things. And uh, I, I could see doing it, but it's, like I say, it's maybe it's not as important as you'd like to imagine. But there is that temptation. I have a friend, Ted Nelson, and he, what, he invented, he worked with something called Xanadu, and they were sort of an early version of uh, the internet. And his whole thing was that he was always trying to write something, and he would become obsessed with that. I need to save every single revision. And then so, and he was working on the software to save this. And you can do it. I think Corey Doctorow does that. He actually does have a way of, he saves it off every single day. And then, but again, it's, I don't know. It's fine, but maybe it's not the most important thing. Jim? How much of the, um, we're talking about characters and where they're drawn from, how much of the surfing and surf culture was from people that you know versus yourself? I mean, are you a surfer? I'm not a surfer. I mean, I've, I bought a surfboard in a wetsuit when I moved to California. <laughs> I tried to do it a little bit, but I never, and I've known, I have happened to find a couple of surfers. You know, a little bit, not really well. But um, I was sort of imagining those characters. But I mean, they're sort of. I've known people that had those attitudes. I've known like slackers, extreme slackers, and stoners, and you know, very California types of people. And so you could kind of pick up that attitude and uh, and project that onto them. But. Uh, Actually, just happened to. I met a surfer in Boston for about an hour the other day. I sort of wish I'd met him before I wrote this book. But, um, but everything you were saying was sort of consistent with the book. I sort of wanted to press the book on him, but I had a feeling he didn't read. So. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, that's, that was fun to visualize this this culture. And uh, somebody was asking before, do I go to Santa Cruz a lot? And yeah, I, I do go there couple of times a month. I like it. Santa Cruz is a cool place. It's one of those places where it just seems like almost everybody you meet there, is, they're just whacked out. And <laughs> and like his, 
his neighbor, that, that really annoying woman who's his landlady, I actually did meet that woman. She's like the most annoying person I ever met in my life. So it was fun to memorialize her. Anymore. But don't tell her. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Let's see. Maybe we've done. Maybe we should get down to the. May, one more question. Anything? Raffle. All right. Let's do the raffle. All right. Everybody get to this? No. Do you think it might be a sequel to this? A what? A sequel for this particular book? Uh, well, I never rule it out. I mean, I like these worlds. Uh, and it's the kind of thing where I, I did a lot of work setting these worlds up, and I mean, it wouldn't be impossible. The tunnel could open up again. They usually do trilogies. Um, yeah, that's, uh, I did one series of four books, the Ware Trilogy, and Ware Tetralogy, but I don't see this necessarily as a trilogy. Oh, sure. I like your earthy style. Skeeve is a great name for the character. Yeah, Skeevy character. <laughs> and, uh, That's one of those words I love. Yeah, and what is this? Immediacy to that sort of individual. I mean, and you're good at that. Yeah. Yeah, i just seen, uh, they had the King Tut show here at the, at the, at the De Young Museum. So I had seen this beautiful golden casket. Thirds through of the book, and there wasn't an Egyptian theme at all. But I saw that beautiful casket. I thought, all right, I've got to have that in the book. And then I just thought to have this complete animal of a surfer who's fucking and smoking the mummies. And just <laughs> <laughs> so getting away from the sort of <laughs> academic high horse. That's one of the nice things about.